Hey, my name's Jeremy, and I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here at Shelter Cove. And I just want to say thank you so much for tuning in with us today. I firmly believe you're going to be encouraged, you're going to be inspired, but most of all, that God's going to do something through this message that's going to move you closer to Jesus. Thanks again for tuning in. There we go. That's good. Uh, good to have you here. Again, my name's Ed Kelly. Uh, Jeremy is on vacation this week. He's up at Hume Lake. If you'd like to go visit him, that would be terrific for him, I'm sure. But for now, it's my honor to uh, address you. We're going to be talking about Romans 8, uh, 18 through 25. I just got back from Washington, D.C. I've been gone all week. Um, most of you probably don't know that I'm a chaplain for the FBI for a thing called Inlets which is an um, amalgamation of organizations, including Homeland Security, Secret Service, and the FBI. I've been doing that for quite a while. As you know, I'm from Annapolis, Maryland, uh, last six years uh, serving there at a church. Normally, what happens is that I'm at the VIP table because I gotta go up and down uh, to the stage and uh, do invocations and things of that ilk. And I also get to pray at the, um, open the whole thing for the National Fallen Heroes Banquet which is an honoring banquet um, for people who are in uh, law enforcement who have died in the line of duty. It's really a, a somber time, but I'm really, really um, honored to be always asked to come out there and do that for the FBI. Um, this particular time, I normally now, when I'm sitting at that table and I do my thing, I come back down, a couple of speakers come up and down for short remarks, and then the whole table leaves because they're, you know, they're muckety-mucks and they gotta go somewhere. And so uh, I leave with them. But this time, not one person moved. And I asked the person next to me, I said, well, how come nobody's leaving like they always do? And it was because this lady, Amy Herman, is her name, was going to be the presenter of the opening of this conference. Now, Amy Herman is an attorney and an art curator at a museum in New York, but she trains the CIA analysts, the new ones that come on board every year at Langley, and also the FBI analysts, as well as many people in the military and emergency rooms. What is her uh, shtick, as it will? It is called the art of perception. That is that she uses art literally paintings, sculptures, and things like that to help agents figure out what they're seeing and sometimes what you're seeing isn't exactly what you thought it was. 
And so two words that she said right off the bat for us to ignore was the word clearly and obviously because no crime scene, no terrorism scene, because it's an anti-terrorism uh, conference, uh, is ever the same and often there's truth inside of a scene of a, a situation that doesn't really stand out to the casual observer. Now there's probably 300 agents in the room and uh, she said, now find yourself a partner. We're all at tables. And um, you need to find yourself the person next to you. And my person was the head of the FBI Baltimore field office, special agent in charge. And uh, she uh, was my partner in this little exercise that this lady made us all do. That is, they said, close your eyes and your partner describe what they're seeing from this piece of art. And they put up a piece of art and I would describe it to her and vice versa. And then uh, we'd open our eyes and what would happen would be that she would point out all the different points about that piece of art. Things like what is there, what isn't there, where are the person's eyes going, blah, 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 blah. And it helped us perceive things. In fact, one of them was a, a, a kind of a bridge over some water and I opened my eyes and there were three different bridges up uh, on the thing and she wanted to say which one was your partner describing. So if it was number one, you raised your hand, number two, you raised your hand, number three, you raised your hand. And the funny thing is 300 different agents from all sorts, 25 different agencies, including New Scotland Yard, French National Police, they sent some people over for this thing. And um, it was all divided. Fortunately, my partner and I got every single one right and I applied for the FBI and I'll be leaving by July. But uh, it was really an interesting thing. And so what I thought I'd do since the, the text today in Romans 8 is all about your perspective, I thought I'd do a little experiment. So what I'd like you to do is find yourself a partner, just get right next to him, doesn't matter if you know him or don't know him, doesn't make any difference, or turn around so you can see it. I'm gonna show a piece of art here in a minute and all I want you to do is discuss what you see. And don't leave out any detail at all. Because this is exactly what she did to us for two solid hours. It was amazing. So let's put the first slide up for me. So describe to your partner, what do you see? This, by the way, was painted in 1590 by an Italian guy that I cannot pronounce. And what this lady said was, it's an amazing some of the detail that you forget. And sometimes if you take a look at it from a different perspective, you also get a little bit different message from a scene. Okay? So then she said, okay, now that you've done that, let me just show you if we flip the thing upside down. Slide two. <laughs> the title of this piece is called The Vegetable Gardener. You see the little man there with the hat? Put slide three up for me. Thank you. It all depends on your perspective as to what you see. And sometimes it requires you moving around the painting or the sculpture or whatever she was putting up there to actually see what really was going on. Uh, lights, thank you. <clears throat> so what I want you to understand is that perception is everything. And those two words, clearly and obvious, are rarely true. People jump to conclusions all the time without really thinking, including uh, some of our friends in law enforcement as she makes sure 
that every analyst, every FBI analyst, and everybody that goes to work for the CIA at Langley goes through her seminar first. And it also includes how you communicate, what kind of memos you're sending, what kind of teamwork you're doing, and that you be careful without a good second look uh, before you jump to some sort of conclusion. And I'd always wondered, what do these guys do? You see it in movies all the time where they're looking at a piece of art and they're kind of looking at that and they stand there for hours and I just can't even fathom it. Well, now I get an idea of what that is like. So I think it's important for us to take a look at perspectives. If you have your Bible, that would be terrific. We're gonna take a look at Romans 8. And if you don't have a Bible, the ushers will come forward and uh, give you one. Just raise your hand and they'll make sure that you get it right away. And then Romans 8, 8. or your local police force, uh, it really is an honor to serve with them. In fact, when I got to Modesto, most of you know I, I just got here six months ago or so, uh, I went on a ride along with the uh, Modesto Police Department at night uh, with one of their canine units, and that was really uh, quite a lot of fun and interesting to listen to all the different officers I met. Um, some of us, though, in this room need to change our perspective. We've been living in a perspective that isn't a biblical one. We've been worried about our money, about our fame, about our position. So in some cases, people do all sorts of things to make sure that their perspective is fulfilling. And I want you to understand that we have a Jesus-sized hole in our heart, our soul, and that only Jesus fills that. And we try to fill it with all sorts of different things. And in some cases, it causes self-centeredness. Sometimes we worry about popularity. Sometimes we worry about money. So sometimes it's sex, drugs, whatever. It, it, we fill things, that try to, because we know there's something wrong with the human condition. I want you to understand that this church believes in a biblical perspective, a biblical worldview. Uh, Sheltered Cove stands for the Bible because we believe in a, a theological thing called verbal inspiration. That is, that every word of the Bible is meant to be there so that we can learn from it. We take the Bible seriously, and it requires a bit of study and a bit to learn it and to think, keyword, to think about what it says, applying it to every situation that we run into. What does the Bible say about it is the most important question you can ever ask about any situation. Now Romans 8 is going to talk about perspectives, uh, in particular about four of them, suffering, creation, adoption, and the last one, the big one, hope, hope itself. So let's take a look at this section. We'll just start with verse 18. And we'll go verse by verse, point by point, and take a look at what Paul has said about our perspectives that may or may not match what you have today. So, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
First word, if you have your own Bible, you should underline this, is the word consider. The word in the Greek of which the original uh, Bible was written, it means to balance. It means to consider, to think is the secondary meaning. And it means for us to go deeper into every single verse of the scripture. And in this particular case, in verse 18 it says, listen, in your present time, there will be suffering. If you're looking for satisfaction in this life, you're sorely going to be disappointed. Because this life is full of persecution and suffering. But compared to the glory that will be revealed, that is when we uh, enter heaven, those of us who have trusted in Jesus, you have to understand that that heaven is so much more greater, so much more valuable than the suffering that this life has on the earth. Folks, I, I hate to break this to you, some of you are very young, but here's the deal. Each person in this room is gonna die. It's a newsflash, I know. But the bottom line is that none of us are going to take anything out of this planet. And therefore, the glory of God, the fact that you go to heaven and you avoid hell, that's even better in one sense, but that you, you, you obtain heaven is something that you always gotta keep in your mind. It's a perspective of having a heavenly bent towards this life that is often very tough. And if you don't think it's tough, it's going to be tough because the world is clearly collapsing all around us. There's no question in, the, in my mind that um, society in and of itself is really having a struggle about what's right and what's wrong. And so uh, Paul is, is talking about this, this um, consideration between the glory of heaven and the suffering of earth. Now, there's a French philosopher that made a, a wager back in the 15th century um, that basically says the same thing. It's called uh, Pascal's Wager. The philosopher's name is Blaise Pascal. What a great name that is, I love that. <clears throat> Pascal's Wager said this. It posits that humans bet with their lives on whether or not God exists. In other words, uh, Pascal argued that rational uh, people should live as though God exists and should seek to know him because they're basically betting, if you will, uh, a short, finite thing called a life which may involve some pleasures or maybe uh, some luxury as compared to if they're right that there is a God <coughs> and that we can in fact know him, then you gain heaven itself. In other words, you're betting your life um, that you're not, uh, God doesn't exist, well that's only gonna cost you 70 plus years. Over here, you have infinity. Because if you're right, well then heaven is your place. An infinite gain, and of course an infinite loss is avoided, that is, that eternity in hell. It's very similar to this. What is the difference between suffering and heaven? Well, it's a giant, um, wide uh, space. <coughs> so, where it says here, this present time, 
he talks about this time as a um, narrow spot. In other words, it's a, it, it, there's a lot of words in Greek for time, but one of them is kairos, and it means right now. This present time, the world is crazy. It's got suffering everywhere. If you've never been to West Africa, I can tell you uh, by personal experience, the suffering is unbelievable. If you haven't been to downtown Baltimore, I can tell you that the suffering is unbelievable. I can tell you there's suffering all over the place and part of it is because the Bible and its God has been removed from education. In 1962, the Supreme Court banned uh, the Bible reading in, in public education in schools. Uh, the list of the top five problems in school that year uh, by a national poll has been going on for a long time, said that the top issues were running in the halls, skipping school, and gum underneath the desks. They took out the Bible that year, and in 1969, seven years later, the top problems in the school polling for that year showed that assault, rape, and dropouts, not to mention violence against teachers, had risen inside the top five. The world doesn't understand that when you take Bible mores out of your life, it actually leads to more suffering. Every time a person ignores the Lord, it seems to me, and I think I could make a good case for it, that more suffering is just around the corner. C.S. Lewis, my favorite author of all time, once said that people of all ilk should at least behave like a Christian, even if they didn't understand it, because it's so much better for the society. That is, if we would love one another with all that we have, that we would understand that other people matter, and that even in the area of police or, or other authorities, that we would respect them in and of itself. Every day I read something that stuns me all the more of how far we've slid as a society. And if ever there was a time to adjust and focus or refocus our biblical perspective, it's now. Because the world needs people who are true blue believers in Jesus and they act that way. More than ever. Because I can tell you, along with my ride-alongs with many, many police departments over the years, um, it, the, the world is really searching for something because it is a mess out there. Now, if you stand up for Christ and you stand up for what's right and you stand up for injustice and all those kinds of things, just realize that you will be persecuted. Jesus said in Matthew 5 in the great Sermon on the Mount, he said, listen, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in, is great in heaven, that's heaven over here, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the first thing I want you to understand is to realize that suffering is temporary because once we're done with this earth, there's a new place. And I don't know about you, but I frankly am looking forward to heaven. Amen to that? How many guys are actually sick of sin? I'm kind of tired of fighting it myself. Uh, outside of the idea of God being in my presence, of me being in the presence of Jesus, or being in the pearly gates and all that stuff, one of the great things about heaven has got to be the fact that I don't have to fight sin anymore. That has got to be such a great thing. So when I balance things out and consider and thinking that suffering isn't as bad 
as the glory I am going to come into at some point in time. So the first point Paul is trying to say is to put suffering in proper perspective. And now in verse 19 through 22, he talks about something that is hardly ever talked about, and that is that creation itself is also going through a different kind of suffering, and it has a different perspective. So let's read that here in, in verse 19, and we'll go through 22. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to, catch this word here, futility. You should underline that. Uh, the word futility in the Greek here means without success. In other words, uh, creation itself is struggling, and it has been from the very beginning. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Um, if you know anything about Genesis 3, you know that man was cursed, woman was cursed, and so was the earth. Not Satan and the angels, that's a different story, but certainly the earth was, in fact, uh, cursed. I'll use that term, because that's exactly what happened. It made things hard to work, hard to grow, in the hope that the creation itself will be, catch this, set free from its bondage to its corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been, catch this word, groaning, moaning, together in the pains of childbirth until now. <coughs> Ladies and gentlemen, uh, to put creation in perspective, it's eager and it's expecting to be redeemed. In other words, we are being redeemed right now, partially so while on earth, fully so when we enter heaven, and certainly at the judgment. But creation is doing the same thing. It's waiting for man to be redeemed so it can be renewed. That's Isaiah 65, by the way. Um, I'm not a panentheist, I'm not a pantheist, but the creation itself has some sort of glory of the creator. It shows the perfect incredibleness of the Lord. And so therefore, the glory of creation is incredible, but it is groaning under the weight of the sinful, well, the sinful place that we have called home through our mankind falling. And so therefore, it has futility, that is without success, uh, desperation. Now, I don't know about you, but there I have a, quite a few little pet peeves, one of which is machines that don't work. I hate it when my phone doesn't work or my uh, car doesn't start or any of that kind of stuff. I, I, I just hate that kind of stuff. Part of it is because I can't fix anything. I took a Washington pre-college test in high school and out of 100 for mechanical reasoning, I got an eight. Susan, my wife of 38 years, fixes everything around the house. I do not. I can't, I can't figure it out. It's that simple. For spatial uh, reasoning, I got a six. For cognitive thought, I got a 97, which I, I'll just leave that with that and let Susan fix everything. But the bottom line is Susan will pull up a YouTube video. If she can't figure it out, she'll find somebody who's explaining it. I don't know who these people are that put all these things on here to fix everything in the planet, but there are people that actually take the time to help you. They got too much time on their hands, but they do that, and that's good because Susan can fix it. <clears throat> I want you to understand that me fixing anything is futile. It's without success. But my most um, significant, I th still think I hold the record of this, uh, futile exercise was when I was playing football. 
We had been beating this team left and right. It's fourth quarter. I'm standing on the sideline. They've pulled all the starters. Uh, they got the second and third people out there, uh, third string out there, uh, doing whatever they're doing. And all of a sudden, we have to punt. And I'm, I'm standing here talking to my friend, blah, blah, I'm bored out of my mind at that point. And then uh, the coach says, hey, we only got 10 people on the, on the field. Get out there, Kelly. And he grabbed me by the face mask and he pulled me into the field. Now, I'm a wide receiver, a split end, uh, somebody who runs out there, catches a football and avoids every contact possible. I'm, I'm the smallest guy on the field. And they put me into this punt return thing, which I've never done in my life. So I get into the, the uh, huddle. I go, okay, guys, what are we doing here? And they say, just stand between the punter and the center and block anybody that comes through the line. Oh, great. They got the smallest guy in the world going to block this. So I get in my position. A hike goes by me. I look up, and these second and third stringers didn't block anybody and they just pour through the line and there's people coming this way people coming that way and I'm backing up and I, I don't know which one to go after and I'm backing up and backing up to the point where still in history I don't think this has happened at Centralia High School I blocked our own punt <laughs> with my rear end I backed right into the punter he took out a ball right there went into the end zone I think they scored that day <clears throat> through the recovery that is the definition in my mind of futile. Me on a punt return. That's the bottom line. So Paul's reminder of our perspectives in suffering and creation um, leads him to a theological thing called adoption. It's in verse 23 if you have your Bible, take a look at it. It says this, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, people, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Grown inwardly, key word, there's that Jesus-shaped heart that's missing in everyone. We groan inwardly, wanting to have a relationship with the creator of the world. As we wait eagerly, catch these, these next combinations, for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So he connects adoption with redemption, and he throws in this little phrase, of our bodies. Uh, biblically speaking, adoption is really simple. It just means that when you turn your life over to Christ, you are no longer your own. You're adopted into the family of God. And Jesus now makes you a joint heir with, with him. You are now literally uh, God's son or daughter. Uh, the spirit within wants redemption, wants a relationship with the God of the universe. Now, this is a little bit technical, but just so you understand this. We only see in part. I would argue this. In our finite body, our limited body, we only see in part and we only live in part. You love in part, you, you see in part, you do in part because we are not fully redeemed yet. Remember he said the redemption of our bodies. The Bible says that those of you who are believers, you will be given at the end of the day when heaven is afoot, you'll be given a new body. Frankly, that sounds good to me. How many would like a new body? Any of them hurting? I don't know about you, but this getting old stuff is not such a hot idea. Anyway, so you get a new body. It's completely different, and here's the key. 
It's unlimited. This body we have today, limited. When you love somebody, you only love partially. Well, I love them with my whole heart. You know, every Nora, whatever that lady's name is, book has that line in it. That's baloney. You know, your whole heart, it's not possible because you're limited. I'm so happy. I couldn't be any more happier. Yes, you could. It's just that you're limited. You are limited in every emotion and every functionality. Over here, you're not limited at all. A glorified body means that you will have the ability to love in full. You see and you love in part over there, the Bible says, but when you turn your life over to Christ and you are fully redeemed, that is heaven itself, you will love like you've never loved before. The Bible even goes so far as to say, no man's imagination, no finite man's imagination can imagine what heaven is going to be like. You know why? Because you're finite. We are finite. But here, when we enter heaven, we will be able to love and to enjoy God forever because we will have no limit to the ability to love. I'll give you an example and I'll make a theological thing that you're gonna think is heresy. But here's the deal. How many of you guys like chocolate? Okay, godly people, good. So how many of you guys like milk chocolate? Oh, those are the kings right there. Okay, so here's the deal, because dark chocolate's evil. They, <laughs> they feed that stuff to cats. So anyway, that's what makes cats so mean. Anyway, um, here's the deal. If I were to take a king-size Hershey chocolate bar and make you eat it one every hour, I guarantee you in 30 days, you would be, even by the smell of it, you'd be ready to throw up. Because you're limited in your ability to enjoy anything. Too much of anything will drive you nuts. I will argue this, that most of you, if you were doing the same thing, even though you loved it every single time, but you did the same thing every hour of every day, sooner or later that thing would become boring. Solomon said as much when he said, everything under the sun is vain. It, 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 I've done it all. I, it, it's, nothing is, is new. Nothing's really, after a while it all gets kind of, Here's the heresy part. Um, and I'll deny to Jeremy if you tell him I said it. Uh, here's the deal. You can stop the camera, by the way. Um, <laughs> It is my opinion that in your current condition, in my current condition, if we were to go to heaven, we would find it boring after a while. Because we can only stand so much. And as much as fun it'll be to sing and, and all that stuff and praise the Lord and all that, and that all washing over you, our bodies have no ability to really love it the way that it'll happen when we have new bodies. It says, in a twinkle of an eye, we will have a new body. And that body is going to be able to love like no other. You talk about imagination. My imagination is pretty stinking good. I could think of some pretty hot, fun things to do over here. But I tell you what, when I experience heaven in this glorified body, it is going to be like nothing, nothing ever seen. 
You're going to be enjoying things beyond your imagination. And by the way, those that don't accept Christ, do not trust in Jesus, uh, they're going to get a new body as well because hell is something that our finite body won't handle either. So I would argue that everything, joy, love, peace, we see in part, but now in heaven we see it fully, no limits. And adoption means just simply, that means that you're no longer your own. You were literally adopted with a price. The price of the cross, Jesus dying for you. And I don't mean the person next to you, in front of you, and behind you, or the person you came with, or any of that stuff. I mean you. You have intrinsic value because Christ died for people. And God did not need to create the world. He was happy uh, in, the, in the triune God part. He didn't need anybody. He wanted people to be. And so I think it's very important that whoever you are, that you first and foremost adjust your perspective, that you are a Christian and you're a Christ follower and you're a disciple of Jesus because you're putting your faith in it with the hope of heaven now you can hope over here in Agnosticville and, and Atheist Town and, and, and uh, you know, think about uh, evolution, but don't tell it to me about science. Just tell me that it's a faith proposition, which I believe it is. Uh, you have faith there, I will take my faith here. Because I believe my faith, being certain of things not yet seen, is found in the scripture and found in Jesus and in God above. And that's okay. It's just that suffering, creation, and adoption needs a perspective, and finally, the big one is hope, and that even needs stronger perspective. It's in verse 24, if you've got, still got your Bible open, and take a look at it. It says this, for in this hope, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? And the answer, that's a rhetorical question, by the way, and the Bible is full of them. But the bottom line is, you don't hope for something you already see. Like, it'd be like me uh, hoping to drive a white Audi uh, car, 2016 car. Why would I hope that when I already see it? I press the little button every day that starts it. Right? That's not hope. I see it. Uh, Hebrews 11, faith is being sure of those things that you cannot see. It's, it's like the faith guy that does the thing about evolution and atheism. He's taking a faith point. He doesn't know for sure. He can't repeat it, so he's taking a faith. That's okay, but here's my faith point. I believe in a God. I believe it explains the meaning of life. I believe it explains the purpose of man. I believe all sorts of things, and I touch it based on what the scripture says. For who hopes and what he sees? The answer is nobody. And by the way, there's some sarcasm here. If you don't think sarcasm's not in the Bible, it's, full, it's all over the place. Uh, Job 38 through 42, God is absolutely sarcastic beyond belief to Job. Job is trying to argue something about his suffering, and God says, now wait a minute, no, 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 tell me, where were you when I placed the stars in the heavens? Oh, that's right, you weren't even created yet. The point being is that rhetorical questions are everywhere in the scripture and hope and faith interact. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Uh, 
You know, America has got a disease. It's called the 22-minute syndrome. It just says that we think that we're like a sitcom where the first eight minutes develop a problem, another 10 minutes they work all the problem out, and then four minutes of pure love and joy and patting people on the back. And it's all over in 22 minutes. Eight minutes of commercials, of course, which we skip with our DVR. But the bottom line is, is that we all think that. We think that problems can be solved overnight. And we have unreal expectations of all sorts of people, government officials, all sorts of people. When in fact, it takes years to get into some of these things and it's gonna take years to get out of it. And when we pray, we pray as if God has to show up and fix things in a week. When in the Bible, it says many times that it takes years sometimes for God to show the hope. That's why we hope in patience. We hope in patience because sometimes it takes that, why, uh, that long in the mosaic of the universe for something to come to pass. What is our patience of hope based on? It's based on the integrity of the Lord's promises. I am here to say that we base our patience for hope based on the fact that Jesus loves us deeply and that God is faithful and that his mercies renew every morning and therefore we have to be patient and we consistently persevere in scripture. It's a different perspective. A.W. Tozer once said this, you will act exactly the way you see God. If you see God as a goody two-shoes, well, then you'll act that way. If you see him as an old man who doesn't really care, his rocking chair and all that, you'll, see, you'll act that way. If you see him as a Santa Claus, you'll pester him to death. Vengeful, wrathful, you'll be scared all the time. Well, however you see God, that's the way you will act. But you and I have hope because unlike all the other fake gods out there, the Lord is perfect and his mercies renew every day and that we can tell that there's grace on one side and justice on the other in perfect balance. Does he want you to obey? Yes, but on the other side of that coin, he doesn't sit there and take notes and try to figure out where you've blown it. We have a perspective and we need it to be right. So if you've not taken a look at God lately, I am telling you, your perspective will make a difference. You may need to flip it all upside down to figure it out. When my daughter was four years old, uh, maybe almost five, she went to the refrigerator, which was not allowed in our house, and she opened the refrigerator. I was sitting at the table, read my newspaper. A newspaper, by the way, was something that had print on it, and it actually you could fold it and touch it, <clears throat> as compared to an electronic uh, screen. And uh, she pulled out a half gallon of milk. But she did it while looking at me. Red-headed girl, that should tell you something. Uh, so it's a little feisty. And so she brought it out, and she looked to see if I was looking at it. And I was looking at it. I was looking at her, and she put her sippy cup on the counter. She opened the little thing, and she started to pour. And sure enough, the cup spills over, milk everywhere, and that scared her and she drops the half gallon on the floor. You know, one of those volcano things, uh, you know. And I'm watching all this, I'm thinking, oh boy. Um, 
you'd have to know my daughter. But anyway, I thought, okay, fine. And I made her clean it up. I didn't clean it up, she did. But the point being, some of you think that the father at the table, God, sees you, you make an error, defiantly so. You think I should grab her by the collar, take her to her room, get her a nice little pink polka dot suitcase, fill it full of her stuff, clean underwear and all that, bring it all out and put her on the doorstep. You blew it! <laughs> and, and you think that's the way God is. And here's my point, it's not true. Your perspective is wacky. God loves you regardless. Does he want you to obey? Absolutely. He has four levels of obedience. The first one is love, second one's duty, third one's respect, and the fourth one's fear. But he wants you to obey. But if you don't, he doesn't disown you. He may correct you, he may make you clean it up, but he's not gonna disown you. My daughter is 33 years old. She sang at the National Fallen Heroes Banquet, The Sound of Silence, as the names of the officers and the pictures went scrolling by. She sings in, in stadiums and things, so she's got a great voice. She's 33, but let me just tell you, I wanna throttle her neck sometimes with her decisions. Oh, my word. Uh, just a, a little, little news flash for those of you who are young parents. It never ends. You're a parent forever. Can I get an amen on that? Never stops. But I want you to understand there is no doubting of my love for her and vice versa. She is still a daddy's girl. It's very important for us to understand that you are still the apple of God's eye because you've been adopted as sons and daughters. And hope is our perspective. So, conclusion, final thought. Whenever I speak, I, I, in Seattle I did it all the time, five, six times a week in different venues, I always ask one question, and that is this, so what? It's nice that we have a suffering perspective, a creation perspective, an adoption as children of God perspective, and a hope perspective, but so what? Well, I would argue that you, the listeners, should ask yourself about your own perspective. How is your perspective these days? Do you need to look again? Do you need to turn it around, flip it upside down, whatever life is challenging you with? Your different priorities may need a different perspective. What perspective do you need to adjust or change or maybe even just get rid of? You've been going in the wrong direction for quite a while. I'm here to tell you that God's arms are wide open, ready to accept a repentant person. To repent means to go in one direction. Oh, I'm going to repent. So I turn and go in the right direction. And I don't know what there is in your life that might need a different perspective, but you and God do. And so tonight... Before you go to bed, why don't you and God have yourself a good perspective conversation? If you've never turned your life over to Christ, right then and there would be a good time to do it. And I don't mean just believing. I mean saying, okay, I'm willing to be yours. Show me what to do. 
Or maybe you've been dinking around with the world and you'd just soon follow that as you would the Bible or for that matter, Christ. And maybe it's time for you to jettison that perspective and change it. Or maybe you've been playing games and you've just been an observer on the fringe of the church and you need to put your whole foot into the pool and jump in and come join us in this cause we call Shelter Cove. Come serve and come learn and come grow and bring a few friends along with you. Maybe that's your thing. Let's bow our heads and take a few seconds and just close in prayer. And thank you so much for your time today. Father, I ask, Lord, that your spirit would fall upon people to convict them of their perspective, whatever it might be. I pray that those that have a correct biblical perspective would be full of joy, knowing that glory awaits. I pray for those that in this room that don't know God at all, don't know Jesus, they're just checking it all out. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would guide them and convict them to become true blue believers. And for those who are playing on the fence, Lord, your perspective or your spirit, may it convict. And in the end of the day, may it all give you glory. Thank you, Lord, for every person in this room. May you bless them and show them the truth. In the name of Jesus, amen.